Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Hey, if this is your first time here, welcome. We're very glad that you're here. My name is Garrison, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton, pastor of uh, preaching and vision. Uh, and so we're very glad that you're here. Hope you feel welcomed and loved and served here, cared for while you're with us this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are white paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. If you want to grab one of those, uh, or if you have your own Bible, if you want to open that to Romans 4, 1 through 8. Romans 4, 1 through 8. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, take one of those paperback, white paperback Bibles. Take that home with you. Make it your own. Uh, we'd love for you to have that and to make it your own. Uh, there also, when you walked in this morning, you received a bulletin, uh, and attached to that bulletin, a, a little slip on the back, the little perforated edge, there's a, a connect card, and um, that's just a good way for us to learn some uh, information about you and, and uh, know how to get a hold of you, um, so we can get together with you, grab a cup of coffee, buy you lunch, something along those lines, and, and uh, talk about how uh, you might get um, connected with what God is doing here in our church family. Uh, we'd love for you to fill that out. There's also a little space for prayer requests in there. Uh, we'd love for you to just take a moment, fill it out. Let us know how we can be praying for you. We'd love to be able to pray for you this week. Those are always given to the elders and, and so that we can be uh, praying for you in an informed way. Um, and so please take a moment to fill that out. Uh, we are in the fourth week of a five-week sermon series called Here We Stand. Uh, and, and we're doing this uh, short five-week sermon series uh, celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, and the way that we're celebrating that is by walking through what's called the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. These five solas, they're simply uh, kind of five summary statements, five uh, summaries of uh, the truths uh, recovered within the Protestant Reformation. Sola is simply a word that means only or alone. And, uh, and so we started the series with looking at sola scriptura, which, which simply means scripture alone. And we saw that the Bible is the word of God, that it's the only uh, and, and final source of, of truth and its sufficiency and it's, and it's clear and it's our final uh, authority as God's people. Um, and, and, and we saw that the Bible is God's word. It's, it's God's word speaking to us, which means that it's perfectly clear and perfectly true and perfectly sufficient and that it's our sole and final authority. That was the foundation of what drove the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, and it's what drives us to this day. Next, we saw uh, the truth of soli deo gloria, which simply means the glory of God alone, the glory of God alone. And, and, and we saw that if the sola scriptura, scripture alone, is the sort of foundation of the Protestant Reformation, then soli deo gloria, the glory of God alone, is what fueled the Protestant Reformation and, and the truth of God being preached uh, for his own glory, for his um, for his honor and glory and praise. And that's what we saw the second week. And then uh, last week, we looked at um, the reality that, that we are saved by God's grace alone. We looked at sola gratia. We looked at, at Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. We saw that we are saved by God's grace alone. God is an immeasurable uh, ocean of love and kindness and favor, and he lavishes that on us in Jesus. He, he justifies us and and, and calls us his children by grace alone. And now this week, we're going to look at the good news of, of what's often referred to as sola fide, faith alone. And that's the good news that God justifies us 
through our faith alone, simply by believing him, believing his promises. God counts us righteous. Justifies, uh, to be justified means to be counted righteous. God counts us as righteous through faith alone, simply by believing his promises. Sola fide means faith alone. And that's the truth that we see here in Romans 4, 1 through 8. And so we're going to dig in. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. We're going to listen with reverence, with joy, with awe, because this is the voice of our God. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth that this wonderful text of Scripture communicates and declares to us. We ask, Lord, that um, this morning you would, that you would help us to believe it, to receive it through faith. Lord, and, and we ask that uh, this morning you would uh, light such a fire of joy and gratitude in us that it fuels us to be a people of humility and a people of good works who honor you and glorify you by serving one another and by serving our neighbors. Lord, we, we ask that you would help us to be faithful hearers of the word by understanding it, Lord, and, and, and seeking to understand it, but that we would not only be faithful hearers of the word, but that we would also be faithful doers of the word as we are sent out in a few moments to, to go love and, and serve our neighbors and the lost, our families, our friends. Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Our Lord, our rock, our redeemer, we're dependent upon you now. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So several weeks ago, we learned about the story of Martin Luther, and we learned about how Luther nailed the 95 theses to the castle church door in uh, Wittenberg, Germany. And we learned about how Luther debated for and stood up for the word of God, and we learned about his boldness and his courage and his conviction in the face of opposition and persecution. And we learned about the Diet of Worms, where he stood up for the word of God, even though the whole world was against him and threatening him. And all this is so true and so wonderful and inspiring, but uh, I don't want to give off uh, the, the wrong impression about Luther. Luther was bold and he was filled with conviction. He was a brave man, uh, but, but he was also a tortured, fragile soul. He was also a tortured and fragile soul. We talked about how what drove Luther was the word of God as this true and clear and sufficient and final authority. And that's true. 
But in another sense, uh, especially before the discovery that we're talking about this morning, Luther was often driven by an overwhelming and weighty sense of guilt and shame. Uh, the man had a, a tender conscience that, that tortured him and accused him and accused him and, and reminded him continually of his guilt. The, the man knew that he was a sinner and he knew that God is holy and perfect and pure beyond his comprehension. And because of this, he lived in constant fear and despair under the weighty burden of his guilt. He knew that he had no right to stand before God. He knew that he had no right to call God Father. He knew that he had nothing in him that deserved God's love and kindness and favor. He knew that there's nothing that he could do to earn God's forgiveness. And this tortured him all of his life until it broke him. This is what drove Luther for much of his life. It drove Luther uh, to become a monk. Luther became a, a monk. It drove him to this strict uh, religious life, this, this life of religious activity, this disciplined life of being a monk. He thought that maybe he could earn God's favor, that he could pacify God uh, by, by living a life of strict, disciplined religious activity. Uh, it's what drove Luther after he became a monk to make pilgrimages to, to Rome. Uh, it, it's what drove Luther to spend hours and hours and hours in the confessional booth confessing every single sin that he could think of. Uh, he used to drive his, his priests mad. They once told him to, to go away and not come back until he had any, any real sins to confess. It, it's what drove Luther to uh, punish and abuse his body with, with extreme fasting and, and, and sleeping in the cold without covering. And you know what? It, it never gave Luther any sort of relief. The burden of his guilt and shame and despair continued to weigh heavily on his conscience like a darkness that just won't lift. Until Luther discovered this wonderful truth buried beneath the centuries of the muck of self-made religion. And this treasure is what we're looking at this morning. The truth that we are justified through faith and through faith alone. Luther was actually reading and studying and meditating on this letter that we're looking at this morning, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. And as he was doing so, something broke in him. He, he read Romans 1.17, which says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And up until this point, whenever Luther saw that term, the righteousness of of God, he, he understood it to be talking about the judgment of God, the, the, the righteous judgment of God against sinners. That's how he had been trained to understand it. But in a wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit, his eyes were opened to see that Romans 17 was no threat of judgment. It was a precious promise. And that the, that, that the righteousness of God is given to us and counted toward us through faith. For the first time, he saw God's righteousness as his perfection and goodness that he counts towards sinners, ungodly people like you and like me and like Luther, and he does so through faith alone. This is what the scripture often refers to as our justification. Justification is the term that we use to sum up this wonderful, life-altering truth that God counts us righteous. He counts Christ's righteousness toward us. He places it in our account and he does so when we trust in Jesus. And this wonderful gift is received through faith. It's received through faith alone. No amount of good works, no high level of morality, no religious activity can earn or deserve this wonderful gift or remove our guilt from us. But when we simply trust God, he removes our guilt and he counts us righteous. That's what Luther discovered 
in Paul's letter to the Romans. And what a happy discovery it was for Luther. Listen to how he describes his feeling when he discovered this. He says this, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors of paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate and fear, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love and joy. The passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. All that overwhelming sense of despair and guilt and shame and that accusing conscience was quieted by this wonderful news of justification through faith alone. That weight was lifted. He was free. He was at rest. He was at peace in his conscience. And maybe you're here this morning and you have a tender conscience like Luther. You have an accusing conscience much like Luther did. Maybe you're fearful and anxious and overwhelmed by a sense of guilt and shame. Maybe you resonate deeply with King David. King David, Psalm 51.3, he says, I know my transgression, my, my sin, my guilt is ever before me. Maybe you know what he's talking about. If that's you, there's, there's good news for you this morning. And it's that faith alone receives justification. And if you have that faith in God, your works, bad or good, don't add or take away from God's acceptance of you. Your feelings, good or bad, don't make your righteousness better, don't make your righteousness worse. That that Jesus Christ is your righteousness and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so it will never change. It's fixed in heaven. Faith alone receives justification. Or maybe you're here this morning, and that doesn't describe you at all. Maybe your conscience is seared. Maybe this morning you're here and you've presumed on God's love. You call yourself a Christian and you truly think you're a Christian, but, but you've, you've presumed upon God's love. You've never really trusted in Jesus. You've never really owned your sin and your need for Christ to save you. And if that's you, you desperately need, need to hear what we're talking about this morning too, because the fact is that faith alone receives justification. That means only faith receives justification. Only faith in Jesus receives this wonderful gift. Meaning that if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, you are lost and condemned. You must put your faith in Jesus. And true faith always produces good works and humility and joy. And so if what I just said describes you, I want want to kind of press in a little bit this morning and ask you to consider if you presumed upon God's love, Do you have true saving faith? Are there good works and humility and deep joy in your life that that testifies that you do have true faith? And wherever you're at here this morning or whatever sort of state you find yourself, and I'm praying that you see how marvelous this treasure of a doctrine is. I'm praying that your eyes would be opened, that you would be overwhelmed, that you'd be flooded with freedom and grace and joy because of this wonderful gift. And we're gonna try to dig up this wonderful treasure. And to do so, we're gonna ask three questions First, what is faith? Second, what does faith alone receive? And third, what does faith alone produce? What is faith? What does faith alone receive? What does faith alone produce? And to summarize the answer, we'll give to these three questions. This is our big idea for the morning. Faith alone perceives justification and produces good works, humility, and joy. Faith alone receives justification and produces good works, humility, and joy. First question, what is faith? Now, if we're justified through faith alone, we need to know what it is, don't we? 
Well, first, let's understand what faith isn't. In Romans 3 to 5, Paul is, is explaining the doctrine of justification through faith alone. He's explaining the doctrine of sin. He's shown how all of us are under the bondage of this sinful nature and how none of us are righteous, not a one of us. But, but, but similar to how we saw last week, there's this wonderful turn in the letter, and Paul says that, yes, we indeed are sinful sinners, every one of us, it's true, but our God, our, our judge, our king, who has every right to condemn us for our cosmic treason against him, rather than condemning us, he sends his son to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we deserve to die. And if our faith is in him, God counts Christ's righteousness toward us. He justifies us, and he does so through faith alone. And here in Romans 4, 1 to 8, Paul uses Abraham as an example. He points us back to Genesis 15, where we see that Abraham hears God's promise to make a great people through Abraham, and, and he promises that he will bless all nations through Abraham's offspring. And that this offspring that he promises, this ultimately is speaking of Jesus. The offspring that God promises uh, to Abraham is ultimately speaking of Jesus. And so when Abraham hears this promise about the people and the offspring and about Jesus, he believes God. And when Abraham believes God and his promises concerning Jesus, it is counted to him as righteousness. And Paul uses two terms here kind of interchangeably. He says, believing God and faith. And he uses these interchangeably in, in Romans 4, 1 to 8. So we can gather that maybe a good definition of faith is literally just believing God. Believing God. Faith is literally believing God. It means to receive God's word and promises as true and worthy of commitment because of your confidence in him. God wants to be believed by you. Not just believed in as if you believe that he exists, but he wants you to believe him. He wants you to believe him. This is one reason why every Sunday we say the Apostles' Creed together, don't we? And we say, we believe, I believe God the Father Almighty. We, we hear God's word every Sunday, and in response, we confess with our mouths that we believe him. We believe what he has spoken. We believe his promises and the things that he's revealed to us in his word, that they are true. True saving faith is believing God. And now you might be wondering how we obtain this faith or how we can somehow examine, we can somehow examine whether or not we have this faith. And the reformers, they often talked about these three levels that are needed, uh, uh, these three levels of true saving faith or three things necessary for true, genuine, saving, justifying faith. To have genuine, justifying faith, you need these, they all start with P, so this should help you remember them. Uh, first, you need to perceive the truth of the gospel. You need to be persuaded that it's true. And you also need to personally trust what is revealed. So perceive, persuasion, being persuaded, and also personal trust. Perceive the truth of the gospel. You need to hear and understand and know the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. True faith requires knowledge of the truth. You know, Christianity, in essence, is news. Christianity is the good news about Jesus, about his life, about his death, about his resurrection. And for someone to have genuine, justifying faith, they need to hear and know and understand that good news. But then not only that, the second is, is you also need to be persuaded that this message is true. You need not only to perceive and understand the, the message of the good news about Jesus Christ, you also need to believe that it's true. You need to believe that Christ truly lived and died and rose again for you and for your salvation. You need to be sure of it. You need to be convinced of it. You need to be persuaded that it's all true. 
But you know, that still isn't enough. You know, you can actually get to this point of being persuaded apart from a saving work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Like, demons have this much. Demons uh, have, uh, have this, they've perceived the truth of the gospel. Demons are persuaded that the gospel is true. Pastor James, who is the brother of Jesus, he wrote the book of James. And in James 19, he says, even the demons believe and they shudder. Okay, demons have good doctrine. Demons have biblical theology, but you need more than good biblical theology and sound doctrine. Now, I love um, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He once said, half the time, I'm trying to convince people that doctrine is necessary, and the other half, I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to convince them that it's not enough. Like, you need good doctrine, but it's not enough. You need to know the claims of the Christian faith. You need to know who God is and know who Christ is. And you need to know what he's done in history for our salvation. You need to know how he saves and redeems and rescues us from sin and guilt and shame. You need to know how all of that works. And you need to be persuaded that it's true. But simply knowing how it all works and being persuaded that it's true is not enough. There will be people in hell for all of eternity who have all their doctrinal ducks in a row. You not only need to perceive the truth of the gospel, and you not only need to be persuaded that it's true, the third thing needed for genuine justifying faith, you need personal trust. You need to personally trust God and his promises. You need to personally trust Jesus and his work on your behalf. You need to trust God and believe that he is a God who fulfills his promises. To use a somewhat trite example, you're all sitting on these benches this morning. And you walked in, you, you looked for a good spot to sit, and you sat down. Why did you do that? Well, first you saw the benches and you knew that's what they were for. You were familiar with the, the, and understand the concept of a bench. It's for sitting, right? And then not only that, but then an expression of personal trust in the particular bench that you're sitting on, you sat down. You sat down. The, the bench is the object of your trust. You trusted it enough to sit down on it. You, you, you trusted that bench that you're sitting on not to break when you sat down on it, not to be covered in like a child's urine or something like that. You, you trusted that the bench could hold you and that you trusted, you depended on the bench by sitting on it. True faith is trusting in and depending on an object. In this case, the bench. The faith, you know, your faith is not actually holding you up. The bench is holding you up, but, but, but your faith in the bench caused you to sit on the bench. And in the case of the gospel, the object of our faith is Jesus. Personal trust is betting on him, depending on him, going all in on him. That means not only believing that God exists and that the gospel is true. It means also betting your life on the truth of the gospel. Personal trust means you know, betting the blue chips on Jesus Christ. Personal trust means being so sure of God and so sure of what he has done in Christ that you're willing to stake everything on it. Willing to stake your life and your eternity and your job and your family and your time and your wallet and your suffering, your everything on Jesus and his promises. It means belly flopping onto God's promises and grace and betting your life that you're going to be safe in him, that he will catch you. As Luther once said, true saving faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace, so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. 
And let me tell you, you, you can perceive the truth of the gospel on your own. You can, that's simply an intellectual exercise. You can agree, you can even be persuaded that the, that the gospel is true on your own, but only by a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. It's personal trust in the personal work of Jesus granted. True faith is not something we conjure up on our own. So often today, faith is treated as this, as this thing, as just that, this thing that we whip up in ourselves. It's nothing more than positive thinking. But true faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit when, when he enters the heart of a person, causing them to be born again. It's personal trust in God, believing that God always keeps his promises, believing that he will keep his promises. And it's brought about in a person by the Holy Spirit. And this kind of faith, and this kind of faith alone, is the way that we receive God's justification. You know, the Roman Catholic Church actually affirmed those first two P's, those first two levels of faith that the Reformers taught. They, they affirmed that one needs to know and perceive the claims of the Christian faith. And they, they believe that, that uh, one needs to be persuaded of the claims of the Christian faith. Uh, they, they need to be persuaded that, that it's true. But instead of the last P, the, the, the personal trust, they said, no, 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 the, the personal trust is not needed. The third thing needed for salvation is works of love, works of love. You need to do good works from a sincere and loving heart to receive God's justification. What we see here, Paul seems to disagree, doesn't he? He actually contrasts the, the faith that justifies from works. He actually, this is in stark contrast to what Paul is talking about here, isn't it? Uh, pick it up in verse 4. He says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Now, we'll pause there. We'll see in a few moments that, that works are necessary. Works are necessary, that, that they show that our faith is true and authentic. But faith is not a work, and faith does not contain works. Justifying faith does not contain works. In fact, this great gift of justification being counted righteous before God is actually opposed to works. You know, we spent like 25 weeks in Galatians this last year. You remember that? Maybe you do. Uh, we spent like 25 weeks in Galatians. If anything was clear by the time that we closed that letter, it was this, that justification is through faith alone and trying to add to it ruins it. Trying to add to Christ ruins your justification. Why is that? Because trying to add you, to your justification with good works is actually saying that Jesus Christ is not enough, which means that you don't actually trust him. You, what you actually trust, if you are seeking to be justified through your works, is you trust yourself, not Jesus. That bench that you're sitting on, again, if, if before you sat down on it, you tried to reinforce it with a, a few two-by-fours, and, and you didn't trust it to be sturdy, so you, you, you tried to reinforce it with a few two-by-fours or a few blocks, or, or you tried to set it up against the wall to, to hold it up, that would not be an expression of trust. That would be an expression of distrust. And so it is when we try to earn God's favor through our acceptance and in his acceptance through our good works. We're not actually saying, I, I trust you, Jesus. What we're saying is, I don't trust you. I'm not confident that you are enough for me. I'm not confident that your work on my behalf is sufficient. Rather, you need my goodness, my works, my acceptableness, in addition to your acceptableness. 
But listen, this will not work for you because you're not good. Trying to add to Christ's finished work with your good works is like throwing excrement on the Mona Lisa trying to fix it. There's nothing, there's, there's nothing in you that can justify. There's nothing in you that can make yourself acceptable to God. There's nothing in you that can get you to heaven. No matter how many times you call yourself a good person and compare yourself to those, those rotten people out there in the culture, no matter how many times you try to justify yourself and justify your sin, it will not work because you're rotten too. True faith takes ownership of that. Notice verse 5, God only justifies the ungodly. True faith in a person causes them to own the reality of their sin and unworthiness. True faith doesn't look to self. True faith doesn't look to self and say, well, I'm I'm not that bad. At least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. At least I'm not like that, that, that one parent. At least I don't parent like that one mom does. At least I'm not lazy like that coworker. At least I'm not a murderer or a sexual deviant. That's not faith, friend. Faith says, I'm rotten too. I deserve the same hell as the most depraved and degenerate criminal alive. I deserve the same judgment and wrath as the most despicable person that's ever lived. I deserve the gallows. I deserve the electric chair. I I deserve crucifixion because I've offended God with my sin. I've not loved him with all my heart and soul and mind and strength, I've not loved my neighbor as myself. Rather, I've loved myself at the expense of God and my neighbor. You you know your sin. Maybe you've not murdered anyone. Maybe you've you've not committed adultery, but you've murdered in your heart. You've you've gossiped and slandered others. You've you've, you've spoken harshly to others and, and about others. You've nursed resentment in your heart toward others. You've committed adultery in your heart. You've lusted. You've looked at pornography. You've objectified those of the opposite sex. You've done things that are foul and detestable before God. You've belittled those made in the image of God. You've coveted. You've grumbled. You've been prideful. You've lied. God hates that. And all of those things are worthy of God's wrath and judgment. And the truth is, is that all of us will stand before God one day. We will stand before God at the judgment when Jesus returns. And the question we need to answer is this. Do we want to stand before him in our own righteousness? Or do we want to stand before him covered in Christ's righteousness? And right at the heart of the Christian gospel is this wonderful truth that Jesus came. And he lived the life that we should have lived. He loved God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. As he walked the earth, he was gentle and generous and kind. Humanity as God created us to be. He went to the cross to be judged as a sinner, though. He went to the cross to be treated as a sinner. Why? As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, he didn't know any of the gossip or the bitterness, the lust, the the pride, the, the murderous feelings in his heart that we all know. He didn't partake of any of that. Yet on the cross, he said, let me take that for you. Let, let, me, let me be that for you. Let me endure judgment for that for you. 
Let, 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 let me become everything that separates you from God. Let me be the one who struggles and calls out for him and can't find him and asks him why he has forsaken me. Let, let me take that for you. He takes on the judgment. And in exchange, he gives us his righteousness, his acceptableness. He gives us his beautiful, untroubled relationship with the Father. So that you can be the one who hears those wonderful words from God, justified. My beloved son or daughter with whom my soul is well pleased, I delight in you. He, God's son, was treated as a sinner, judged as a sinner, so that you, a sinner, could be treated as God's son. And how do you receive that? Simply by trusting him. Simply by believing him. Like Abraham, you believe God and it's counted toward you as righteousness. By faith, Christ's righteousness is credited into your account. His record is now your record. His righteousness now covers you, his sonship, his acceptableness, his perfection, his beauty, his untroubled relationship with the Father is yours by faith. What does faith alone receive? Faith alone receives justification. And now as we close, faith alone doesn't only receive. Indeed it does, but faith alone also produces. We're going to look very quickly at three things that true faith produces in the life of a believer, and I want you to consider if these things are present in your life. If not, then, then you might have business to do with God. First, faith produces good works. Justification is through faith alone. Good works don't merit justification, don't merit you being counted as righteous, but true faith always produces good works. The reformers used to always say, salvation is through faith alone, but not through faith that is alone. As James says in James 2.17, faith without works is dead. It's not actually a living faith. Just as an apple tree produces apples and a mango tree produces mangoes, a, a, a person who trusts in Jesus for their salvation, they will produce good works. If you trust God, you will obey him. You will obey what he has commanded you to do. Jesus died for us to save us from our sins, not in our sins. He, he died to remove the guilt of sin and our justification, but he's also saving us from sin's dominating power as well. And so he's not content with just leaving us and continuing in our sin and unrighteous works. We're called by God to obey his law and slowly to grow into the righteousness that's already been counted toward us. And although we'll never reach that high goal on this side of heaven, if someone is claiming to be a follower of Jesus, if they're claiming to be a believer and they're not changed, they're not a believer. True belief always begets true repentance and obedience to God's commands. When you trust God, you obey him. Faith will always necessarily produce good works. But a word of caution here too. Be careful as you look at your good works that you don't slip into trusting in them. That you do not think of yourself as more highly than you ought. Be careful that you not be puffed up with pride because of them. Be careful that you not begin to boast in your good works. And one way I'd suggest avoiding the pride and arrogance that comes from this is, is to glance at your good works, but to gaze at Christ. Glance at your good works, but gaze at Christ. If you're wondering if you have true saving faith, look at your good works, but don't merely look at your good works and don't look there for too long. 
Ultimately, look to the object of your faith, Jesus. Look to the one who saves you. Look to Christ. Glance at your good works, but gaze at him in all of his beauty and goodness and grace. And be humbled that you have done nothing to earn or deserve God's love for you. As J.C. Rowell once put it, he said, For every look that you take at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. And if you do, you will grow in humility. Humility is another thing that faith produces. Self-righteousness and pride cannot live in the heart of faith. Faith merely receives God's gift of justification of righteousness with empty hands. You brought nothing to the table in this exchange except for your sin that made it necessary. And in handing over your sin, you receive Christ's righteousness. Apart from him, you haven't a leg to stand on. That necessarily produces humility, doesn't it? Paul actually mentions boasting in Romans 4 here and in the previous chapter as well. And he he says in the previous chapter, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. Boasting, the result of pride, is excluded from this doctrine of faith alone. It's put to death. As Paul says in another place, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, what have you got that you didn't receive? And, And why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Faith alone produces good works in humility, but not only good works in humility, faith alone also produces joy. You know, we talk a lot about this around here. As many of you already know, I can't tell you how many times I've explained justification, forgiveness, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone this year even. And we're going to continue to do so. We're going to continue to talk about this in as many different ways as possible uh, this, this wonderful truth, this, this doctrinal concept, this good. But we want to continue to talk about it because you may understand it as a doctrinal concept. You may understand it. You may be able to regurgitate it. And that's, that's good. That's necessary. But that's not enough. Theoretical justification through faith alone, justification through faith alone as a concept is not what we're after here. Like, I want you to feel forgiven. I, I, I want you to feel the freedom and the joy and the absolutely unfettered uh, comfort and refreshment of the reality that, Christian, you're good with God. Like you're good with God. Like you can rest your head on your pillow tonight and know that it is fixed in heaven and for all of eternity that God's smile is upon you, that his immeasurable love and favor has been placed on you. And in the same way that he calls Jesus his beloved son with whom his soul is well pleased, he says that over you in Christ. And so I want you to know, Christian, that this is more than a theological concept. Is it more than a theological concept to you? Is this more than an abstraction to you? Like, does it make you sing? It made David sing, and this David's song is quoted here, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Like, we were covered in sin, but now we're covered in the righteousness of Jesus. Before our sins were counted toward us, but now they're no longer counted toward us. Rather, Christ's righteousness is counted toward us. And because of that, we're covered in Christ's righteousness. Because of that, we're freely and fully accepted by God into his family as his child, as his very own. We're loved, we're treasured, we're delighted in by the God who created us. And how many times have we given God reason 
rather than love and favor and delight, we've given them reason for judgment and wrath. How many times have you clicked on that website that you shouldn't have? How many times have you seen someone of the opposite sex as an object of sexual gratification? How many times have you yelled at your kids and been too harsh with them, even this week? How many times have you been dismissive or neglectful or mistreated your spouse? How many, how many times have you been lazy and addicted to entertainment? How many times have you been addicted to busyness and work? How many times have you done what you shouldn't have done? How many times have you not done what you should have done? And yet, at the end, when Jesus returns and you stand before the judgment of God, if you trust in Christ, you will hear those words. As surely as you're hearing them from my mouth right now, justified, freely and fully accepted. Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. If you truly get it, if you truly believe it, that will give you joy. It will make you sing. Like Luther, you will feel yourself to be reborn, as he said. It will make you feel like you've gone through the open doors of paradise. No longer will you be filled with hate and despair and fear, but you'll be filled with the sweetness of inexpressible love and joy. The truth will be to you, like it was for Luther, a gate to heaven. Faith alone receives justification and produces good works, humility, and joy. Let's pray together.